All right, we are clear for takeoff. Over. Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I have for you today? We have the New Year's edition. It's the New Year's, and it's very convenient that uh, we record today. But what do we have today? What do we have today? We have Israel bombing refugee camps now as official policy. We have the civil war in Myanmar escalating into China almost. And then we have... Uh, Trump being taken off the ballot. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, first things first, we have Queen Margaret. I think that's Queen Margaret of Denmark announcing her abdication. She'll be abdicating on the 14th, and she's announced that power will be transferred to the crown prince. Uh, actually, who is the crown prince? I'll be honest with you. I have forgotten that a lot of European countries are still technically run by monarchies, with, of course, Britain being the quintessential one and the primary example. There's a royal family there. I'm pretty sure there's a royal family in the Netherlands, probably Belgium as well. I know I know that there's uh, royalty in Norway. I was just reminded of that because uh, it, it was just a, a complete side note on another video that I was watching uh, about it was Zelensky. That's, that's what it was. Zelensky, he had went to Norway and met with their royalty. And I'm like, huh. I did not know that they had royalty still, but they do. It's just one of those hidden facts of, of history where we all thought that the royalty just went away magically after World War One, and they were nowhere to be found in World War Two. but they really stuck around. They really stuck around, and while people, I, I use Britain as the example again, people believe that these monarchies and these, these royal families, these bloodlines, don't have any power, and it's just, oh, it's only ceremonial. Sure. Sure, it's only ceremonial. And looking at Britain, uh, yeah, you're, you're the head of state of, let's see, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the, the United Kingdom. Technically, is, uh, the United Kingdom itself is technically fucking, what, four countries? <laughs> Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. Because they don't like to think of themselves as a single country, and they get to have four separate teams <laughs> when they do sports. It's like, oh, okay, well, well, how about we just have a, a separate a separate team for every state when we when we go to the world? We're not allowed to do that, but you know. But uh, yeah, well, shoot, I guess they're different countries living under a crown, and we are one country. So you know, just another reminder that America is not as divided as we like to believe. But yeah, Queen Margaret. That's her name. She's abdicated, and but who's the who's the prince? That's what I need to know. Uh, I'm just gonna uh, yeah. Uh, who is who is? Let's okay okay. But yeah, there's lots of royalties in Europe that just they exist in the background and we don't even know about them. So let's see. Uh, Friedrich, there we go, Friedrich, he's the crown prince of Denmark. 
and he's 55 years old. Okay, well, that's definitely younger than, definitely younger than nearly 100, because she was, she was 80, the, the, Margaret was like 80, 83, there we go, 83 years old, so he's 55, that's a good 30 year uh, drop down, not exactly what you'd call young, uh, but shoot, it's a peculiarity, all right. It's a peculiarity. He's probably he's probably been working with her in the backgrounds, playing strings in Denmark and neighboring societies, because that's how these things go. The, the, the I'm I'm convinced at this point that the bloodlines just operate more behind closed doors and less out in the open than they used to, because it's easier that way, at least from the perspective of democracy being the only legitimate form of governance. Well, it's really hard to maintain a constitutional monarchy uh, where the monarch is actually exercising authority because now you open up the monarch and the bloodline to criticism and they don't, these people really don't like being criticized by the public. They'd rather issue, they'd rather issue rulings and judgments from the shadows and then have those, those essentially decrees voiced by other people who are in elected government. And then those people get to take all the flack and and the damage, the political damage to their careers for voicing those opinions. And then the idea gets passed anyway by everyone else. But the family stays in power. That's why I'm convinced that things go in Europe. Does it always work that way? No. Look at Brexit, for example. I would say the election of Maloney, but they put Maloney in her place real quick. and this is the EU, of course, uh, not necessarily referring to Italian royalty, but hell, perhaps there was. I mean, Mussolini never really got rid of the, the Italian royalties either. Just a, it's just a very interesting side note of history. But yeah, just a very peculiar reminder that Europe is still run by their monarchies. And it just... It's just something that pops up every now and then that we you don't really think about. It's like, oh, right, they they still have kings, queens, and crown princes and whatnot. So, you know, like, in the Arab world, specifically looking at Saudi Arabia or, like, the UAE, or, hell, is Qatar run by monarchy? I know, there's, I know there's more, but I'm just blanking on which one specifically. But I know Saudi Arabia, I know that Brunei... <laughs> Uh, Brunei is not in the Middle East, but they're over in East Asia. They're, they have monarchies. Shoot, the Kim dynasties in North Korea. These other monarchies are much more upfront, much more public. Uh, well, as public as you're going to get with a, a royal family. And they are much more direct in the, direct in the openness of their control, right? Because... You know that when an order comes from the top down in North Korea, that it came from Kim, right? You know that when something happens in Saudi Arabia, it happens with the consent of the, the crown prince or the crown king. You know that when something happens in these other monarchy-run states, that it was the monarch who did it. But with the European monarchs, it's, oh, it was the parliament. And, and the monarch is just... It's a ceremonial figure. They, they don't really do anything. And you can believe that if you want to. And maybe you're right. I just am too suspicious to believe that. I know that if I was a monarch, 
I would rather run things from the shadows than to have to deal with the scrutiny of, of, of a, a Congress, of an election, of a, of having to deal with the press every time I, every time I gave a ruling, I have to go answer to the press. I'm not trying to deal with all that. If I'm a monarch, forget all that. Forget all that. That's probably one of the. That's probably one of the reasons these people want to go back to like a, a neo feudalism, where so they they really don't like the people that they rule over, but they really enjoy ruling over the people. But yeah, if I was a monarch, and I had the option between having to deal with public scrutiny every time I made a decision, and not having to deal with public scrutiny every time I made a decision, I'm taking the second option. And I know that for a fact because that's how I play games. I don't. I don't do Congress. When I'm playing a strategy game, all right, I, this isn't up for a vote. <laughs> uh, you do what I say, and if you don't, well, sucks to suck. You're gonna do what I say. That's how I run things in a, in a game, and these people view real life as a video game. I have no reason to believe that they that they actually don't have any real power. Again, am I being a conspiracy theorist? Maybe. You know, I'll, I'll throw that out there. I'll maybe. I just don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> But don't we all? But anyway, that's Queen Margaret. She's abdicating. She's on the 14th, handing it over to the prince. Uh, meanwhile, we have, excuse me, Russia hitting Kiev with around 120 missiles and about 30 drones, kamikaze drones. In what so far is the largest missile bombardment of the war. What a way to, well, not quite start off the new year. I mean, it was a few days ago. But wow, what a way to end the year, huh? The largest missile bombardment uh, in the war. Obviously, they're not talking about battlefield bombardments because you'd have to count the shells. And no one is going to report the counting of those shells because it would destroy this idea that the Russians are running out of ammunition. Oh, my God. Oh, speaking of, oh, 120 missiles just falling on Kiev with 30 drones. I thought I could have sworn they were running out of missiles. What happened? I, th I thought Russia was running out. I thought Russia lost 83, 70-something percent of their military forces in, like, the first two days of the, of the war. You, you remember that that nonsensical thing that people still run with? These people, a, a lot, not... Not people in the in, in the independent media space. Like, thank the Lord Jesus for all the faults of independent media. Thank the Lord Jesus, because it is so. Uh, is it is mind numbing the right word? Because uh, I don't feel like my mind is going numb. I I feel like my mind's about to burst <laughs> with confusion and annoyance whenever I I hear these these talking points get repeated. It's like, oh yeah, Ru Russia's lost over half of its military forces in Ukraine. Lost? You mean they're using? <laughs> you mean they're using half of their, you know, like the actual actual combat troops? Because the, the whole force before the war was like seven hundred fifty thousand. So not all of that is going to be combat troops. A lot of it's going to be sort of behind the scenes, logistics, managing the daily menial tasks so to keep the actual combat forces in the field, which is, you know, a part of modern warfare. It's always been a part of warfare, but the more technology has been involved, the, the more sort of 
logistical work has to go into making everything run properly because before you could just pick up a sword grab a grab a, a little bit of armor slap it on a hundred men and now you have an army you, you didn't really need logistics beyond how are we going to feed them all how, how are we going to organize the tents like logistics was still very important but it was a lot more a lot less complex not necessarily less difficult but a lot less complex, a lot less manpower intensive. But the more technology has gone on, the more you have, I mean, you have to man the satellites now. It's, it's not just the guns that need to be manned. It's the tanks, the artillery, the literal rifles, the guns, uh, the, the anti-tank missiles, the, the RPGs, the, the, the surface-to-air missile systems, the air defense systems, the, the radars need to be manned. Because think about it, if you're manning the radars, that's not a combat role. That's very much civilian. But yet, well, not necessarily civilian, that's non-combat. But yet it is crucial in modern war because you have to see what's coming at you and tell your your other, your troops what's happening. Oh, this thing's coming in at, at this speed, coming on this position right here. You have to be able to do all that. And then somebody else has to be there to communicate that to them uh, and and so on. Air traffic control is a non-combat military role. Like, there's a lot that, you know, just analyzing the, the raw numbers of troops and then looking at how many are actually deployed in Ukraine, it's like, well, why is that the case? Oh, well, all these other things have to be done so not all the troops can be combat. And it makes sense, of course, of course. I mean, I remember looking at the, the total number of U.S. troops. It's technically over a million, but we only have like a half a million less than really slightly less than half a million in the army and it's like well wait a second well where's the extra million coming from oh because it's it's certainly not going to be in the navy we don't have enough ships for that it's not going to be in the air force we don't have enough planes for that it's the non-combat role now in the case of the u.s it's a lot of bloat as well but it, the non-combat roles still take up a very large portion of of modern fighting forces the uh, case in point nearly two around half of the Russian military is non-combat, uh, but we see the value of the work being done because their combat forces are able to just sit there and plow through the Ukrainians. Well, uh, more like the Ukrainians come and get plowed because the Russians are just sitting there. They're starting to move, and they've been moving slowly, steadily. They're making moves around Avdivka. We've talked about that. They're making moves around Kherson, and by that, I mean they're just sitting there artillery spamming the bridgehead that the Ukrainians have. Uh, what is it? Clinky? I think that's the name of it. Clinky or Plinky? With a K or a P? And they, they have this this bridgehead, this... They have this... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bridgehead. They're on the west... Not the west. The east. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm just tripping over all my words. The Ukrainians are on the east bank of the river where the Russian forces are. But they're bottled in to this relatively small area and the Russians are just bombarding them with artillery and the Ukrainians keep feeding men into the pocket. It's all these little cuts and gashes that the Russians open up, these bleeding ulcers, if you will, where they create these fire pockets, the Ukrainians feed men into them and the Russians can just farm free kills off of them like a, like a damn zombies game in Call of Duty. They just get, oh, there goes a hundred men a day. Oh, there goes another one. There goes another. Oh, there goes another. 
And then you, you do this like a, a dozen, a half a dozen or a dozen or multiple dozen times across the, uh, the front line every day. That's thousands just gone every day. That's unsustainable losses when you're looking at a war stretching on indefinitely. Now, I love, I, lo I rant on it all the time, but I, it really is entertaining at this point, <laughs> listening to people talk about they want to freeze in Ukraine. How will, what freeze? And why would the Russians give it to you? When they get free kills, they, they can just sit there farming free kills off the Ukrainians. Where's the ones arming the Ukrainians with NATO equipment? So the Russians get the, the double whammy of farming free kills off the Ukrainians, bashing their heads against Russia's defenses, but they're bashing their heads against Russia's defenses using NATO equipment. So the Russians, as they destroy Ukrainian forces, are destroying uh, NATO equipment. And now they've mobilized a million men in the background, quietly, while all this has been going on, while we've been talking about a, a, the great counteroffensive and how the, the Ukrainians are going to go all the way to the Black Sea and, and how they were going to end the war and, and all these things that didn't happen. Russia's mobilized a million men. And, and, and crickets. Crickets. And I said that, and back back when we first heard about the, the 300,000, and then two months later heard that they were going to go for an extra half a million as well. I said it back then. They're not doing this. Uh, back in December, I mean, because I was looking at the numbers. I'm like, well, okay, something isn't adding up here. Russia doesn't need a million men to fight Ukraine. So why do they why do they feel the need to have a million men? They don't need it to fight Ukraine and they're not going to need it with the way that the war is being fought whether you Russians are just sitting there and watching the Ukrainians throw entire generations away. Why are they doing this? They're preparing for what comes next because eventually they have to go on the offensive to end the war themselves because the ukrainians aren't going to negotiate the the united states is too uh up our own ass to sit down with the russians directly uh, and we we don't have the, the cojones to tell the ukrainians what their position is so we do these these little schoolyard games where it's like we're gonna we're, we're gonna tell ukraine oh oh we're gonna tell the russians oh yeah yeah ukraine is ready to negotiate even though the Ukrainians are yelling and screaming at us, uh, all these profanities uh, about the Russians, they're not ready to negotiate at all. They want to fight, and then they, they want us to continue to, to continue financing that fight. The Russians were not mobilizing a million men to fight the Ukrainians; they were mobilizing a million men so that when they, you know, put the dog down—the dog being the Ukrainians—when they put this dog down and end the war. They would have the spare manpower and all and plenty of reserve formations already in the field, ready to go in the event that NATO did something stupid, like trying to rush forces into eastern Ukraine as Ukraine is being destroyed, which uh, eastern no western Ukraine. I keep getting east and west mixed up. Rush forces into western Ukraine as Ukraine is getting flattened by Russia which Russia isn't necessarily opposed to. It's just doing that puts them at risk of getting hit by Russian artillery and Russian guns. And that brings with the risk 
of a war between Russia and NATO. But NATO's spilled away all of its military equipment. Russia has a million men mobilized. They're prepared now. They are actually prepared to go on the offensive. Not just, oh, we have the equipment. Oh, our military is perfectly capable. No, no, no. It's, we are capable of doing the duty, of doing the task, and we're prepared for potential alternatives in the event that NATO does something stupid. They're prepared to wipe Finland off the map. They're prepared to wipe the Baltics off the map. And then they're going to stop. <laughs> they are prepared to march to Warsaw to force a peace. And then they're going to stop. They're going to go back to where they want. They're going to redraw the boundaries of Europe because that's what's going to happen in the end of this. And then the Russians are going to fortify their border and tell you that then they're going to tell Europe to go fuck itself. That's what's going to happen. They're going to say, here, here's a pipeline. Now leave us the fuck alone. We want nothing to do with you anymore. That's where they're at. And that's what's going to happen. No. As, and this is all 2024, mind you. 2024 is just going to be such a, a, a very, very, very eventful year. And it has officially begun as of today. Uh, so happy new year. But that's Russia, Ukraine. We'll probably be talking a lot about that this year. We have as well, we have the US and Europe planning to seize over 300 billion in Russia's uh, foreign currency reserves, specifically those reserves held in dollars. This is gonna cause a run on the dollar. When they get around to this, and I was watching a Duran video on this uh, earlier today, if they get around to doing this and they're planning on doing it sometime around the, the second anniversary of the Russo-Ukrainian war, it's gonna cause a run on the dollar. Whether that's immediate or over the course of 2024 because a lot of assets are held in dollars so you can't just pull all that out immediately but similar to how countries like china and brazil and uh other BRICS nations and BRICS um applicants who are going to be joining formally in just a matter of weeks actually just like how they've been buying fewer and fewer bonds u.s bonds uh by billion on the order of billions of dollars worth of bonds they're just not buying them as much anymore and they've actually been selling off their bonds they're, they're u.s government bonds china brazil have been selling them off they've been the biggest sellers in the the u.s bonds just like that's been happening over the course of 2023 which is another silent but l lethal trend happening in the background if we go through with this seizure of russian assets because they've been frozen as of now the assets are frozen if we follow through with this idea that's been floated around for two years of actually seizing the russian dollar denominated assets what that's going to say to everybody else is the dollar is no longer a safe haven for your money that's going to mean private investors aren't going to want to do that unless you live in the united states of course so all the private investors outside of the united states and quite frankly because i've uh, dealt with and watched people who are sort of in that more trading mindset in in terms of uh currencies like trades stocks cryptos whatnot they don't trust the u.s government they don't these the types of people who are involved in that world right 
are already distrustful of the of governments and of the U.S. government specifically. They are hostile to the Federal Reserve, or almost to a T. It's it's almost an ideology, if you will. People who are involved in that world are hostile towards the the so-called credibility of the United States government. So not only will seizing Russian assets drive away foreign investors, which you to be fair, you don't necessarily want foreign investors to have too big of a stake in the in the activities of your economy because then that gives them outsized control. But we're not even at we're not we're nowhere near that point right now. We're nowhere near that point to where it's even a consideration. You're driving away foreign investors, and they're going to get rid of their dollar-denominated assets. So all, there goes the stock and bond market. That's going to take a tumble, and the solution is probably going to be lots of government interference and bailouts. So expect that to try to to try to pump the markets up. It's probably going to be a, a big, a very big pump and dump scheme. Pump, 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 pump. But you're going to drive away foreign investors. You're going to drive away foreign governments, people who purchase U.S. debt, like China, people who per, who buy U.S. debt through the bond markets and whatnot. They're going to be selling off their bonds. They're going to be getting rid of their dollar-denominated assets, especially if they're countries like, oh, I don't know, Iran, or any of the the new applicants of BRICS, like. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, or India, because you know with the whole assassination of Sikhs in Canada, India is now coming under fire. Everyone who's not completely 100% on board the the ship that is the United States Empire, they, all these countries who realize that they're on the chopping block next, especially the Chinese, they're gonna go well. Okay. They've just crossed the line and seized Russian assets. They've gone beyond we disagree with you. We don't like your government to we're just going to do whatever the fuck we want to you. Well, okay. Well, you're not going to do that to my money. I'm not going to I'm not going to leave it in an asset held in dollars for you to get around to it later on when it's my turn. I'm going to get my currency. I'm going to get all my money out as much of it as I can. I'm going to relocate it. I'm going to perhaps even reinvest it back in my own country. That's what's going to happen because money moves, money moves. And if it, if it doesn't have a safe haven, it's going to be put to work, which is going to be great for everyone outside of the United States. <laughs> they, all those foreign assets are going to come home and they're going to have to be put to work because people who have that kind of money don't like letting it sit around. They're going to put it to work and it's going to get put to work in, in either infrastructure projects in Africa, infrastructure projects in Central Asia or, or the Middle East or industrial investments in China. It's not, it's only going to benefit the multipolar world. And we are going to get hit so badly with that because if people just aren't using the dollar, that height, then then we start to feel inflation in a way that we haven't seen in this country. Because the value of the dollar is artificially propped up by all, all the activity overseas that is done in US dollars. And it's part of the reason why the effects of inflation happen so slowly in the United States in spite of the incessant money printing. It's because of all that artificial demand. With the artificial demand gone, we're going to see what the real value of the dollar is, and it's we're not going to be happy with it. But that is another big event of 2024. We also have South Africa filing a genocide case against Israel in the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, 
and coincidentally, my own views regarding Israel's actions in Gaza, and they filed this uh, genocide case for similar reasons to me, uh, and the reasons why my position has slightly shifted, and I'll talk about that in a minute. They filed a genocide case against Israel, citing the crimes with, which they believe have genocidal intent, the crimes that Israel has been committing in Gaza, to which it, that's a position I have actually come around to. And I'll again, I'll get into that in just a minute. And also in the background is the Israeli Supreme Court has issued a ruling against Netanyahu's judicial reforms. If you remember, Netanyahu is trying to uh, alter the court to give himself more power over it. And that caused a bit of a constitutional crisis in Israel. And this was right before October the 7th, when suddenly all this talk of the judicial reforms died down, and now they're right back. Israel, so now that the, the foreign threat thing has is no longer able to keep down the differences and the divides in the domestic politics, be, and I love how the article I was reading tried to make it seem as though it was the court's fault for reopening these fissures uh, and not Netanyahu's fault for starting the problem. But I'll digress. Now Israel crumbles from within. They crumble from without through their actions in Gaza where they've they've had thousands of casualties and reportedly the casualties are in a nature where the people live, the soldiers live, but they become crippled because of the way in which Hamas is fighting them. So you have thousands of casualties in Gaza. These are going to be permanent uh, invalids, so to speak. N not in the literal sense, but, you know, they're going to be crippled. They're going to be crippled for the rest of their life. So thousands of casualties, tens of thousands of civilian deaths, which we can't even call casualties anymore because it's deliberate now. And I'll get into that. All this and now Israel losing its international position, losing its you know the oh they're the jews you can't criticize them that's going out the window because of israel's actions in gaza the the sacred cow status is gone and now israel crumbles from within at the same time because the whole mobilize to fight the foreign threat the rally around the flag effect is no longer functioning enough to ward off the child the constitutional crisis that was still unresolved and is still unresolved as of now Israel's in a tough spot. We'll talk a little bit more about Israel uh, now. So we'll just switch on over. So let's get into Israel. I said that my position... <clears throat> just trying to clear my throat. I said that my position on Israel and its actions of Gaza have changed a little bit. Just a little bit. And so I'll provide a little bit of the context for that. I have been reluctant since the beginning of this round of the fighting in Gaza. I've been reluctant to call what's happening a genocide, right? I've called it ethnic cleansing because that's what it is. It's ethnic cleansing. Israel's uh, its stated aim is to remove the Palestinians from certain parts of territory. And we've seen them exercise this goal in the West Bank. 97% of it's occupied by Israel. Only 3% of the West Bank is under direct Palestinian control without some shared governance or total governance by the Israeli state. Ethnic cleansing, the, the resettlement program, where they, they force the Palestinians out of their homes, build a wall to keep them coming back, and then resettle the land 
in oftentimes the same houses with Israelis. And I was watching a Jimmy Dore video and there was this real estate company was advertising beachfront real estate in Gaza. And it was a, a sort of remodeled image like a picture was taken of this area it was remodeled to make it look all nice and shiny but the picture was taken of a war-torn neighborhood in gaza because it's literally just been depopulated not that a, a month and a half ago it was depopulated from all the the residents leaving and fleeing south to avoid the fighting and now here they go advertising beachfront real estate now why would they do that if the goal, if they were not aware, or at the very least making bets in their own mind that the Israeli government was going to annex at least that much land. Now, if you live in a country for a long enough period of time, and you're honest about the people who rule you, you get a good understanding of how they behave on certain uh, issues. So why did this company feel brave enough, brazen enough to make predictions that that real estate was going to be Israeli real estate and therefore available for them to sell to Israeli citizens. Why'd they feel comfortable doing that? If they were not making the estimation that Israel was going to stick around in these parts of Gaza. They wouldn't. So they're betting Israel's plan is to stick around. And it's not like it's a hard bet to make because the Israelis have said as much. They they want to take certain parts of Gaza. Now, now they say oh, a, a, a little bit. They're talking about a little bit of Gaza as a, as a deterrence. But remember... First, it was, we're not going to take any of Gaza. We just want to, to destroy Hamas, right? First, it was all the, the civilians in northern Gaza need to flee to the south to avoid the fighting. We, do, we don't want to hurt you. We don't want to kill civilians. We're, we're the most, yeah, I, I love when the Israel Sims say this. They're so humanitarian. They, they just care so much. They're the most moral fighting force in the world. Oh, my God. God, it's Israel, the IDF. So professional. Oh, so professional. They wouldn't they wouldn't hurt a fly. <laughs> Don't you love listening to people <laughs> to people simp for foreign governments? As as if as if we didn't have evidence to the contrary every day. It, it's insane. It's it truly is insane how ignorant people can choose to be in the modern day. Now, maybe I'm the one who's ignorant, shit. It's still impressive, wouldn't it be? <laughs> yeah. My point would still stand. But it's it's really impressive how we can watch the Israelis bombs, bomb whole neighborhoods, and then people will sit there on Twitter and on YouTube, in, sitting in the comments section, running defense for a country that isn't theirs, a government they're not run by and that they have no loyalties to or affiliation with and go oh uh, uh, that's that's incorrect that's uh, I, I was gonna tap on my keyboard but i'm afraid it's gonna stop the recording <laughs> it's 
I was I was gonna I was gonna go all in for the analogy. <laughs> that that's incorrect. <laughs> the Israeli government they 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 drop little bombs on the roof to let everyone know that that there's a bomb coming and so everyone can get out. They're, aren't they so moral, guys? They let you know that they're gonna bomb you before they bomb you, uh, unless it's a really high priority target in which they bomb you anyway, and then they they leave a, a little note saying I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand the Israel Sims man. <laughs> I can I can at least understand. I like I don't agree with the Palestine Sims either, but at least at least they have the 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 saving grace of simping for people who are who are having a genocide committed against them. At, at least they have that much going for them, you know. My goodness, it's a goddamn shame, and it's hilarious and frustrating to watch. But I, I say that every week, but so that that's nothing new. But uh, you know, I still find it comical. But they do this that they they tell everyone to flee northern Gaza, right? Because we don't want to kill the, the civilians. We only want to kill Hamas. You have to get out of the way, right? We don't want Hamas to be able to hide behind their own people, right? So you get hundreds of thousands of people leaving the north, as many who can do flee, but that's obviously not everybody. As many people who can flee do, and they go to the south. But now, like clockwork, the Israelis are bombing the south, the, the same place you just told everyone to flee to. Why are you not bombing the north? Why are you not going into the tunnels? What are you doing? Now, Scott Ritter actually has a a lot of insight into Hamas's tunnels and how they they're like eight feet deep beneath the ground, so you can't really detect it with traditional methods and like radar for trying to find uh, under. I almost said underwater underground caverns because it's too deep for the radar to penetrate and figure out that there's a tunnel there, that there's a cavity beneath the earth. But let's just look at this from a from the stated supposed in, intention to not kill civilians. You've reduced the land area that the two and a half million people in Gaza can live in. You've reduced that area to half. You've deemed the northern half a war zone. You've told everyone living in the north to flee to the south. So you have uh, increased the, the population density of southern Gaza by double-digit percentiles, and it is in that environment that you now choose to bomb southern Gaza. Yeah? That's what we're doing? Like, like really think about that. You told, you, you've told everyone in northern Gaza to go to the south, You've increased the population density, aka the likelihood that you're going to hit a civilian when you drop a bomb. And now you choose you choose now to start dropping bombs in southern Gaza. The IDF raided a refugee camp in the West Bank. Now this isn't Gaza, this is the West Bank, just a just a subtle reminder. Uh, that the atrocities in the West Bank are still going on and that the West Bank is not 
free from the strains of this war, they raided a refugee camp in the West Bank and killed six Palestinians. Now, mind you, the West Bank doesn't have the Palestinian military there. The Palestinian Authority has no military. They, they don't. Quite frankly, I'm not even entirely certain if they have a, a functioning police force or if the Israelis do that shit for them too. The West Bank is literally disarmed. And the Israelis are still going into the West Bank, raiding refugee camps and killing more civilians. I hate to break it to you, but Hamas isn't in the West Bank. Hamas, you know, that, that group, that entity, that, that savage barbarian terrorist group that you, that you said you were out to destroy, that you were gonna wipe out in this war, it, well, in this round of fighting, that them, they're in Gaza, not the West Bank. So why are you raiding refugee camps in the West Bank for? What are you doing that for? Israel also announced, announced, right? Because we covered uh, the bombings of Rafa and Kanyanis a few weeks ago, where they dropped bombs on those two refugee camps in central and southern Gaza. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Now the IDF is announcing publicly that it is expanding its ground defensive into the Gaza Strip. Expanding, not contracting, not falling back, not we're going to de-escalate, not we're going to we're going to wrap this thing up. No, we're going to expand ground operations in the Gaza Strip to urban refugee camps. And of course, it's not just the Gaza Strip, as evident by the fact that they're raiding the West Bank as well. Refugee camps. They're not, they're not expanding operations into the tunnels, into the bunkers. Remember how the, 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 the Hamas, the, the savage barbarians, you remember how they had a bunker underneath the Shifa, Shifa the, the biggest hospital in Gaza? Remember how they had a bunker and we, we have to get in there and they were getting into shootouts at a hospital? Talking about, oh, we don't want to kill civilians, but we're going to get into a shootout at a hospital. And, and then there was no bunker. All the people who died. All civilians denied medical treatment because the, the hospital that they were going to became a fight, a, a war zone. Became, uh, there was a fight at the hospital because Israel decided it was going to start shooting up the hospital. And for what? For what? Now they're expanding operations into urban refugee camps. And they say the Gaza Strip, but it's really just all of Palestine. They're, they're now just raiding they're now just raiding refugee camps. So what that combined with them bombing southern Gaza means, it means that nowhere is safe for the civilian. Because there's been heavy bombings in Burej, uh, I think that's how you say it, Burej, the refugee camp in central Gaza, 
and there's been bombings, more bombings in Khan Yanis and Rafa. Those are both in the south, and there was bombings of those before we talked about it. That was the first time, to my knowledge, that Israel had started bombing refugee camps. Now here, it's just official policy now. We're just going to start bombing and raiding refugee camps. We're just going to do it now. Why? Oh, because the, because because Hamas is there. Oh my God, there's Hamas there. So we're just going to bomb everybody. We're just going to kill everybody so we can get Hamas. Yeah. And again, I, I, I can't stress it enough. These are the areas that they told the civilians to go. Specifically, southern Gaza. Central Gaza, you can say, oh, that's fair game because it's the halfway point. Fine, fine. But southern Gaza, that's that was supposed to be the not war zone. That was supposed to be the, if you're not Hamas, flee to the south so that you don't get caught up in the fighting. And now here you are bypassing the north to go bomb the south. After increasing the population density by flooding the south, the southern half of uh, one of the tiniest plots of land of any sovereign state, semi-sovereign in the case of Palestine, they don't have sovereignty. After compacting the population into less than half of what it had before, by flooding it with hundreds of thousands of people from the north into the south, causing a border crisis for the Egyptians in the process, now, after doing that, you want to start bombing the South. You want to start, and not just bombing the South, you want to bomb refugee camps. Like, like, uh, what are we even fucking talking about, bro? What are we talking about? And, and this is, and this has just, just been built up for me. Like I've been watching their actions and I'm like, well, okay, I don't think it's genocide yet, but if they keep this up, they're going to get there. If they keep, if they keep doing this shit, they're going to get there. We remember when we went over the numbers and it's like, okay, well, they, they've jumped from saying that 1500 Hamas are dead to saying that 5,000 Hamas are dead. But if you look at the numbers of total deaths in Gaza and you realize that so, less than a third of that are men. And you, you run the math, 40% of 20,000, okay, well, that's children, right? A third of the deaths are women, so that leaves men with like 30%. 5,000, oh, that's literally every adult male. You're saying literally every adult male that has died in Gaza is Hamas. Yeah, that's just lying. That's just like, we could, we could maybe believe you if it was only men dying. We could maybe believe you. Like if it was, if it was one innocent civilian for like every nine adult men, maybe we could believe you. Maybe. Because that would at least show some efficiency here. You've at least managed to narrow down the kill list to only adult men. But remember... By, I'm running with the higher end estimations for how many Hamas there are, and that estimation, because it was the first number that came to me, and I just think it's perhaps a realistic number. The highest number of Hamas is that there are sixty thousand. Now, most people operate off the assumption that there's a, around half or less than that. I just like sixty thousand. 
So, but keep that in mind that I'm running with the higher end number here. But there's 2.3 million people in Gaza, right? 2.3 million. 40% of that are children, right? Turn that by 0.4. So, 920,000. So, 2 million and 300,000 minus about 920,000 children. So that leaves you, that leaves you with uh, 1.38 million people, adult men and women. Let's just say that half of that are men. Let's just say half of the remaining dirt is men, and that's roughly accurate. <clears throat> So now we divide that by two. That means that there's almost 700,000 adult men in Gaza. And out of that 690,000 adult men, total adult men, not children, adult men, out of almost 700,000 adult men, 60,000 are Hamas, right? Right, 60,000. Now we divide that by 690,000. Oh. That's 8%. Eight and a half percent of the total male population in Gaza would be Hamas. And yet you want to tell me that every adult man who has died in Gaza is, is Hamas. That's mathematically impossible when you're killing as many women and children as you are. That's mathematically impossible. We're not even dealing with like 10% here. We're not even dealing with one out of every, out of, out of every 10 people in Gaza, one man is Hamas. It's, it's less than that. It's less than that. If you kill 10 men at random in Gaza, you would probably kill, maybe, if you repeated the process over enough times, you would probably have one Hamas for every 10 men you killed. Maybe. And the, the the actual math is a little less than that. It'd be like it's like it's like one in twelve, right? But yet every adult man who's died in Gaza is Hamas. They they want to say that five thousand they've killed five thousand Hamas, the the same number of the the total number of adult men who've died, and they say that the, the death numbers in Gaza are inflated. The number of Hamas you claim to kill matches the supposedly inflated number of adult men that the Palestinian Ministry of Health says have died. So who's inflating the numbers? If they're matching up. It's it's just nasty. Like it, it and there's just a fucking lie. Just a fucking lie.
And I think that they have crossed that threshold for me. Because now you can't say anything other than they are intentionally trying to kill civilians. They are intentionally trying. It's, it's beyond we're actually trying to fight Hamas, but we don't give a fuck how many civilians we kill in the process. It's beyond that, right? It's beyond that. Now it's, we're not even trying to kill Hamas. We're just killing civilians. We've corralled all these civilians into southern Gaza, and now we're going to bomb them. We've corralled all these people into these refugee camps, and now we're going to bomb them. We've we've hurt and injured all these people. They're going into, into hospitals, and now we're going to bomb. We're going to get into shootouts and gunfights at hospitals, and then we're going to bomb them when they go to the refugee camp. That's not fighting Hamas. That is literally fighting the civilian populace of Gaza. And that's without taking into account the fact that they put Gaza under siege, cutting off food, water, electricity, and fuel. Put Gaza under siege. Completely ignored Hamas. Completely ignored Hamas's tunnels and have just gunned, literally gunned straight for the civilian population of Gaza at every conceivable turn. That's genocide. That is genocide. They've crossed the threshold of genocide. Now, perhaps I'm just late to the curve, but I think that at this point, we can say without a shadow of a doubt that they are committing a genocide. Don't say I didn't do anything for the Israelis. I didn't think that was an appropriate thing to say. I can't say anything contrary to that now. I said their goal was to remove the Palestinians. That doesn't necessarily make it a genocide. And, and as a side note, I really don't like how a lot of these terms, like war, genocide, ethnic cleansing, these terms which have very clear meanings, I don't like how there's been like a half a million additional definitions added to each one. Oh, if you're attacking people's culture, that's a genocide. Oh, if you remove them from a piece of land, no, that's a genocide. No, oh, if you use information warfare, if you hack somebody and you cause damage, oh, that's warfare, it's information warfare, all this fifth generation. I don't like the mudding of terms. I like to keep things very simple for the purpose of people understanding what the hell I'm talking about and so we can communicate. War is when people are shooting at each other and using violence against one another in an, or in an organized fashion, right? That is war. Ethnic cleansing is when you force a group of people off of a patch of land. That's ethnic cleansing. And oftentimes that comes with the resettling of that land with your own people or with some other group of people. Genocide is when you kill a group of people based solely on their identity. And that's what's happening in Gaza right now. The only reason civilians are dying in Gaza right now is because they are Palestinian. You can't say it's, oh, they're just collaterals from Israel trying to fight Hamas. They're not even trying to fight Hamas. What Hamas are you fighting in a refugee camp? Hamas is in tunnels and bunkers and underground supply depots that they built throughout all of Gaza. What Hamas are you fighting? By bombing apartment complexes. You're not fighting Hamas at all. You're, you're literally at war with the population of Gaza. 
You're fighting a group of people based solely on their identity. That is genocide. And you're killing them. That is genocide. Hamas is in Gaza, not the West Bank. So what are you raiding refugee camps in the West Bank for? That is genocide. You've told the entire civilian populace in Gaza to flee to the south to avoid the fighting in the north just to bomb the south anyway and bomb all the refugee camps that are flooded with people because you depopulated the north. That is genocide. They've crossed the line into genocide. There's nothing more to say. Israel is not just an apartheid state. They are a genocidal state. They still have the chance to end the war before what co what's coming comes. Because the Iranians and the, and the Arabs are working to, to contain the conflict. The Turks aren't. The Houthis aren't. And who knows who's next? But Israel isn't going to get any sympathy out of me. And that's all I have to say. For now, of course. But now, we'll move on to another conflict. And this one is in Myanmar, or Burma. As I'll probably use the names interchangeably. So Myanmar, Burma, same country, just different names. So, I saw a story saying that the Three Brotherhood Alliance, and this is a a sort of rebel slash militia group fighting against the, excuse me, they're a, a militia group fighting against the Myanmar military. The military, as you may know, may not know, the military overthrew the civilian government back in 2021. And it's been a military junta ever since. They claim election fraud people's other opposing them say uh, otherwise and now this conflict has sprung up uh, i say sprung up as if it just started now but it's been it was a, a very sl uh, a steady descent into what is now a civil war but understand that it it goes back to that moment in 2021 when they had elections, the military claimed that the the people who won the elections cheated. They arrested uh, San Suu Kyi. She was the leader of the, the party that had won the elections. The military had its own political party, and they had apparently lost the election according to the numbers. The military didn't believe the numbers, so they came in, arrested the leader of the party that won the election, supposedly, because, uh, of course, they claim it's fraud. They claim it's cheating. I can't make such a certain assertions now if it was america's election oh i could do that all day long i can make assertions every day <laughs> and i will but this is a foreign government's uh, elections and i don't know enough about them or about their elections to make such claims <clears throat> which is also why i was reluctant to say that uh bolsonaro in brazil was he uh, election fraud happened against him i can I, like many pundits in america were quick, quick to say I can't say that. I don't know anywhere near enough about Brazilian politics. I know American politics. And since I live in America, lots of information was privy to us living here that may or may not have been available to those outside. But alas, 
the military in Myanmar said that the election was illegitimate, that the, the party that won cheated, they arrested them, some people were executed. I'm pretty sure they didn't execute San Suu Kyi. Although, man, I should probably just look that up. Well, <laughs> let me just go ahead and look that up. But, yeah. It got messy, and it got messy fast. Because from that moment onwards, it's just been a serious blow to the legitimacy of the Myanmar government, right? Because they, they were promising democratization, because the military had been in charge before, up until that point. Promising democratization, promising democratization, promising democratization, and then when they finally get democratization, what happens? The government doesn't accept the results of the election, and then, boom, they just they just, they just threw it out. They they just throw it out. They they overthrow the person, they get rid of them, and now that the military is back in charge, so it's been a major blow to the legitimacy of the Myanmar government and even if they are correct in saying that the election was fraudulent it is also a blow the current state of events is a blow to the legitimacy of the Myanmar military because from the perspective of a, a, a your average joe they went back on their word because they lost the election so you can see sort of the the, the very basic building blocks of a conflict which ultimately did spill over. And now you have this story here with the Three Brotherhood Alliance, like again, a, a rebel militia group in the jungles and mountains of Myanmar, launching an offensive against the Myanmar military. The Alliance has reportedly taken control of several towns and border crossings between Myanmar and China. So now they're partially controlling some of the flow of trade between the two countries and this is being called being called the biggest military challenge to the junta since it came to power they've been sort of playing whack-a-mole with all these uprisings and militia groups and guerrilla groups that have been springing up all across the the jung the mountain jungle countryside that is burma <clears throat> and this is seen as a legitimate threat because they are cutting you off from your border with your biggest trading partner China. And so they've created a new problem. These these rebels, these militias have created a new problem that hurts the government. Well, that, that hits the government where it hurts, I should say. And it's apparently such a problem that China has now issued a warning to its citizens operating just beyond it operating in the borderlands but not the borderlands of China, but the borderlands of Myanmar. So they're, so they're outside of China, but they're right next to China in the borderlands. China has issued a warning to their citizens operating in these borderlands uh, saying, yeah, return to China. Don't get caught up in this mess. Right, that's what they're saying. And this is a first. Because before they were perfectly content to leaving this alone. Now they feel it necessary. They feel it dangerous enough, I should say to issue a warning and a travel advisory to their people. And they're saying, get out of these borderlands, come back to China. It's getting messy over there. 
So we've seen a, a clear deterioration of the situation in Myanmar over these past, well, almost three years. Straight deterioration, civil de descending into worse and worse civil war as the central government and the military are straining themselves to reestablish total control over the country while having a legitimacy problem that has probably led to the legitimacy of rebellion against the military, if we're being honest here, promising elections and then overturning the elections you promised for decades. That's just, again, my rather normie outside in perspective of the building blocks that could have led to this. But this is the situation Myanmar is dealing with. And now it's gotten to the point where the Chinese feel that they have to respond, not directly in the, we're going to go get involved, we're going to send our boys over there. We're, we're going to go get in. The, see, the Chinese, they're not slow. <laughs> when they see someone else having a civil war, the first thing that crosses their mind is not, let's go send our troops into the middle of that so they can get shot at. You know, like like the things that are... are brilliant geniuses in U.S. government like to get up to, right? The, the, the deep state, if you will, the things that they entertain, these incredibly stupid ideas that get us nowhere, like in Syria. Yet that's not the first inclination of the Chinese. Say what you will about China, uh, their deep state isn't as retarded as ours. <laughs> but here they are saying that we need to get our citizens out of here. That's an escalation, a small escalation, but an escalation saying the conflict is now a threat to Chinese citizens in Burma. But these are the borderlands. And if you're going to retake these border crossings, then that would mean fighting in the borderlands, which increases the risk and the likelihood that civilian that Chinese civilians will die in any military operation that the that the Burmese military undergoes to try to reestablish control over these border crossings because it's necessary for their economy. It's necessary for their standing with the Chinese government because people, smaller countries that are in these types of situations will look to keep other powers out. And part of that is having your legitimacy recognized by nearby great powers, of which China and India are one and two, with, I suppose, Siam or uh, Thailand being number three. But China's the big boy. India doesn't really want to be over there, and quite frankly, going to their, their own eastern border with Burma is challenging for them logistically like they they already have their hands full dealing with the chinese and the himalayas they're not looking for more problems so india isn't too much of a problem but it, you definitely want to have at least one of these titans recognizing your legitimacy and not the legitimacy of any one other faction because then you open up the possibility that the chinese seeing a threat to their own people start to arm and fund uh, rebel groups so that they end the war faster. If it becomes apparent that you're not going to win, well, maybe we need to help the winners win faster, right? So that the fighting stops and our people are no longer in danger. 
because that's a real threat. Because at the end of the day, the Chinese are going to do what's best for the Chinese, uh, and that might not always be what's best for insert neighbor here. Now, the Chinese want peace. They don't like having a, a conflict on their border. No one appreciates that. But this is the type of conundrum that you're in when you're a, in a civil war. And we were in a similar position during our civil war because, of course, all these lovely allies, as we call them today, were more than eager to start fucking around in the Western Hemisphere the second we were preoccupied. Because uh, America had become a great power by the time of the Civil War. And so now a great power is in the middle of a Civil War. And it's like, oh, okay, well, we're going to go install a German prince to the throne of Mexico. Oh, don't mind us. Oh, we're, we're going to go have talks and diplomatic relations with the Confederates. Oh, don't mind us. Oh, we're going to do this, that. We're going to do all of this, and we're going to operate it out of Cuba. Oh, don't mind us. You know, all these allies. But, but all the countries we're supposed to be afraid of today left you alone during your Civil War. So... It's just important to remember your history. You know, it's, it's really important to remember your history. Know, know who your real friends are. <laughs> but yeah, we've had, we've, we've been in this situation ourselves. This is the, the position that the Myanmar military is in. It's a precarious one. They're fighting, fighting, fighting in mountains and jungles. So it's a, every bit as difficult as that sounds. This is going to go on for a while. This is going to go on for a while, which brings open... Well, which brings with it the possibility of a foreign intervention of some kind, which may or may not be beneficial to Myanmar, the military, depending on who's intervening and who they're intervening on behalf of. Because if, say, China and India come in with weapons and money, I don't think they're going to provide weapons. Maybe India might sell weapons. Maybe Russia might sell weapons. But I think if China and India are going to do anything, they're, they're going to come in with money <laughs> and political support, if, if anything. Because they're, they're much more geared towards civilian economy than we give them credit for. But if they were to come in backing the, the junta, the military of Myanmar, well, that would be way more beneficial to the military, the still government of Myanmar, the still official government of Myanmar. If they, if any one of them, it, but however the worst case scenario is, say China comes in backing one faction like the Three Brotherhood Alliance who controls large swaths of the borderlands between China and Myanmar. Maybe India comes in supporting a different faction. Maybe the, the Russians come in uh, supporting some smaller faction in, up in the mountains. And then the Americans come in supporting some people along the coast. And you get a, a really bad tangle of interests that just greatly retard the process of piecing your country back together. That's the worst case scenario. But considering that this war is going to be a long and drawn out one, that possibility is going to be there right up until the very end. So Myanmar is in a tough spot. They're in a tough spot. Uh, and uh, I, I saw some numbers for this. Uh, I tried to look up how many people had died due to this civil war. And the ACLED, and that is the, <clears throat> the armed conflict Location and Event Data Project, the ACLED, they're claiming that f over 43,000 people have died in the fighting over, since uh, the Civil War broke out in 2021, 
which is believable, which is believable. I mean, it has been plenty of time for that to happen. It's a guerrilla war in large parts. Plus, the military is fighting rebellions basically all across the country because there's a lot of different groups who just happen to be associated with each other, both for and against the military. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's been a, a good amount of time, so it's believable that there are around 50,000 dead. Now, perhaps that's overcounting. Perhaps that might be undercounting. We there's not too much reporting on this, quite frankly, so I'm just using the numbers I'm given. But this is a potential problem. Because again, the longer this war goes on, and the more sort of oomph and muscle that the Myanmar military puts into trying to put this down, the more they run the risk of an intervention. Especially if, say, international attention shifts onto them in the same way that international attention is on Israel and Gaza right now. Because that can happen in an instant. Like, Israel and Gaza have fought many, many, many times before in the past, but they've never quite had as much attention as they do now. Not since, like, the actual big wars that Israel fought with all of its neighbors at the same time. Yeah, they're getting that level of attention right now with Israel, with the Gaza situation. That could happen with Myanmar in an instant. And then suddenly, the Myanmar military has to be a lot more careful and measured and cautious with their actions than they would otherwise like to be to try to ward off foreign intervention. Because there's a, a, this, a really strong tendency, and this is a sort of conflict of interest between what the international community would like and what a nation would want the, the difference of interest between international and national. Like there's international interest and there's national interest. That, that's what I'm trying to get to here. I, I just keep wording it the wrong way. There's international interests and then there's national interests. The national interest is to keep your country together. You don't want secessions. You don't want re rebellions. You don't want referendums where people just vote to leave. You don't want that. You don't, and you don't want some coalition of other countries to come in after you have a rebellion and say you're not allowed to put down your rebellion you have to let the rebels keep the territory that they've just stolen from you no country wants to have to deal with that but no community of nations around said country want to have to deal with the consequences of said country killing itself no one likes having to deal with conflict. Like, look at Egypt. They don't appreciate having a border crisis caused by hundreds of thousands of Palestinians being displaced from their homes, from the, the fighting in Gaza. They don't appreciate that. And with the Houthis bombing and attacking shipping bound for Israel and basically blocking the entire Bund... Uh, uh, what was that? Uh, Bob Al-Mandab Strait. There we go. There we go. Aha. I've remembered. They they basically put a, a halt to all shipping moving through the Bab Al-Mandab Strait. That hurts everyone's pockets, especially the Egyptians, because now nothing has any reason to go through the Suez Canal. And nothing that wants to go through the Suez Canal can if it's coming through the Red Sea. 
nothing that wants to go through the Suez Canal can if they're not going to be able to get out of the Red Sea, if they're going the other way, you know, towards Asia. The international community doesn't like having to deal with wars. So the international community is incentivized to step in and try to mediate peace. And you can see that with Ukraine. You can see that with, hey, you guys need to stop the fighting. You guys need to sit down and talk with the rebels. You saw this with Minsk II. You saw this with unofficial Minsk III when the Russians came in and tried to negotiate with the, with the Ukrainians directly. You saw it with every, every peace deal that the, the non-Western world proposed, which said Ukraine's going to have to give up territory in exchange for peace. The international community is sitting here going, okay, well, the fighting needs to stop. That means you have to talk to the other side. And if that means the other side gets to secede from you, then you just have to accept that. The international community, international interests are much more pro-secessionist than, say, a national interest would be. Because the international community doesn't really care about the sovereignty of your nation. They care about conflict and if that conflict's going to affect them. And with that, you have a conflict of interests because again countries don't like being abolished and they don't like being outvoted as to whether or not a piece of their own land is going to be taken from them like it is understandable that the ukrainians don't want to give up the donbass they would rather fight a bloody civil war and retake their land than to negotiate with anybody else over the matter now unfortunately russia intervened they don't get to have that choice anymore and we probably would have been in a really bad situation had, say, Britain intervened in our civil war, which they threatened to do multiple times over the course of the war. But, we, you know, we still we still think of them as a friend, even though they were America's biggest op for like 100 years and in many ways still are. But no one, no country wants some international mediation to come along and say the rebels get to keep the part of the country that they seceded in. Like Ethiopia civil war was going on not that long ago. They don't want Tigray to be an independent state. They want there to be one Ethiopia. China doesn't want there to be an independent Taiwan. They want there to be a one China. They don't want Hong Kong and, and Macau and, and Taiwan to be all these, these separate entities. No, there's one China. Uh, and there's uh, to a, it's a different story for the, the Koreas. It's a bit of a different story because they're... They, they really are two separate countries right now, but they're one nation, but two separate countries. They're even they're toying with the idea of unity, but of course it's different because they're actually two countries. America, the Confederacy, we didn't want, we don't, we don't want to have to recognize the Confederacy. If Texas seceded tomorrow, well, we don't want to acknowledge the independence of Texas. We want to take Texas back. Right now, maybe Texas might not want to come back. Oh, we're free from Biden now. <laughs> but the international community has interests in conflict resolution by any means necessary, whereas national interests dictate conflict resolution uh, by any means necessary as well, except through negotiation. Uh, so to put it a different way, the international interest when it comes to conflicts within nations is a resolution by any means necessary 
whereas the national interest is to keep the country together by any means necessary. If that means fighting a 10-year-long bloody civil war and letting 100,000 people die, then so be it. We're going to keep our country together. That's not an international interest. And it's, it's always interesting to see the conflict of these interests. And we can start to see that again in Myanmar, but we can see it very brilliantly with Ukraine and with pa Palestine. And we're going to see it again with Taiwan, just over and over and over again. And, and even before the Russo-Ukrainian War, you saw it with Minsk 1 and 2. In the Normandy format, remember all that? How all these things, these institutions, these these formats and these talks that were supposed to end the war. Unfortunately, they were being orchestrated by people that didn't really want to end the war. But you, you see what I mean? International mediation wants to end the fighting and doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily account for the integrity of the nation that they're intervening in. So it's always interesting to keep that difference of interests in mind. But alas, that is Myanmar, and they're in for the long haul. So we'll pray for them uh, and hope that this conflict gets resolved relatively soon with as, as few deaths as they can as unlikely as that's going to be with how many different you know groups are fighting each other how many different militias how many different fractures are currently engaged in the fighting right now but alas that is myanmar all right and so for the last topic we'll talk a little bit about the u.s election because we have multiple states now attempting <laughs> attempting and failing to take Trump off the ballot. And so the games begin. And they begin. It's 2024, baby. We have a half a million court cases just lined up. These those are gonna be entertaining as all hell. You have all these all these uh unconstitutional attempts to taking him off the ballot that will fail in time. You just gotta give it time. Now there's talk about the Supreme Court having to come in and rule on this and what are they ruling on? Well, what was it, a week or two ago? I, th I, I think it was a week ago, but, uh, you know, this the, the, the they came out so close together that I'm not entirely sure anymore, and I, I was dismissive of it when I first heard it, so I really couldn't tell you. But first, it was Colorado, right, Colorado's Supreme Court saying that Trump wouldn't be able to be on the ballot in Colorado. And then they stayed the decision. That means they sort of put it on pause instead of enacting it. Pending a Supreme Court decision. So the decision they reached, they immediately delegitimized by themselves and said, it's, it's going to be a legitimate decision if the Supreme Court agrees with it. Otherwise, uh, we just said some shit out of our ass and now we're not going to go through with it. So Trump is going to be on the ballot in Colorado. And now, almost like, and then like clockwork, you have this this person in Maine. Well, who is she? Who is she? The, the, the Secretary of State of Maine, Shanna Bellows, right? Uh, Shanna Bellows. And I listen, you listen to the little interview they do 
for her talking about, oh, it's, it's such an unprecedented thing for a, a secretary of state to do to, to take a presidential candidate off the ballot. But, but you know, uh, this is also uh, the first time that a president who's engaged in an insurrection has, has uh, tried to run for re-election. Um, you know, that type of person. <laughs> that type of person. She has unilaterally, uh, she, an unelected bureaucrat, has unilaterally taken the decision to remove Trump from the ballot in Maine for the primaries. This will not stop people from writing his name. He's a very memorable name and a very easy one to write, conveniently for him. His name isn't Ramaswamy or Vivek. Uh, so that that's that's definitely a disadvantage that Vivek would have if he were in the same situation. But Donald Trump is really easy <laughs> to write. This will be bypassed, even if even if her little decision stands, which is unconstitutional because she doesn't have the power to do that. See, the state legislatures can delegate a lot of power, but they cannot de- delegate not at least not constitutionally the authority to change election rules according to our own constitution it does only the state legislatures can make these types of changes only the state legislatures can decide how elections are run now the last time i checked one person who happens to be the secretary of state is not a state legislature you're a state secretary not a state legislature which means you don't get to make these decisions. But, you know, people like to pretend, you know, and, and they'll, they'll do it with an air of legitimacy so you don't question the fact that everything about this is literally illegitimate based uh, according to our own constitution. This will be challenged. This is... Uh, the games have already begun. Like, we, we thought we were watching the games before. Oh, no, no, no. This is the big year, folks. This is the big year, ladies and gentlemen. All the knives come out this year. It's just going to be wham, bam, bing, bang, schling, clang, clang, clang. It's just it's just going to be all over the place now. They're going to do everything they can to try to to try to hold this man down. It's like it's like every <laughs> it's like Michael Jordan stepping on the court and now all five <laughs> niggas on the enemy team are trying to stop him and they still fail to stop him from dunking on them and then it's just nothing but net and then the person that he's been and the person in front of him is just getting nothing but nut all on your face <laughs> that's what's going to happen in 2024 and biden is going to guarantee that that happens because he's you know he's fading fading fast i'm not talking about polls uh quite frankly i don't i don't really trust the polls they're nice to see every now and then but uh, I maintain my distrust of polls because I don't think that the methodologies and, quite frankly, the sources behind the polling have adjusted to the American electorate. And quite frankly, I don't think that a lot of the people conducting the polling are honest. So for the time being, I will continue not to run with polls. Excuse me. I'll run uh with other pieces of evidence that we have and i'll just bring up a poll every now and then uh you know because it we're gonna get a lot of polls it's 2024 now we're gonna get a lot of polls saying a lot of different things and uh we're gonna get a lot of talk about how oh bobby kennedy robert f robert f jr 
RFK. There we go. <laughs> Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, he he's going to take all these votes away from Trump and then it's going to give Biden the victory. Oh my, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He, more Republicans are going to vote for him. How? <laughs> How? Like, Republicans like him. Don't get me wrong. Republicans like him. But are they going to vote for him over Trump? They're not. Like, let's stop deluding ourselves. When the majority of Democrats, according to these polls, say that they don't want Biden to run again, which is a, a, a piece of evidence that is matched anecdotally when you ask people on the street or when you listen to them long enough to hear them talk about politics, no, no one likes Biden. They're not going to get that guy. Hey. And when you see these videos, uh, and there was this video that just came out, it was very entertaining, of these this group of black leaders in Chicago. Like real black leaders, not these these fake people who these race hustlers, but like real black leaders in the community, uh, on video talking about if you think it, that these illegal immigrants are so important that you need to cater to them and pander to them, then you can ask them to vote for you. You can ask them to vote if you think there's gonna be a. <laughs> a peaceful democratic national convention while our people are struggling stay tuned <laughs> stay tuned chicago is an open rebellion from the democrats it's it, you never thought you'd see it right but hey it's the american revolution baby never thought you'd see it yeah you just ah uh, I know that Lenin's getting a, a whole lot of. I know he's rolling in the grave with all the co with all the quoting he's getting from people quoting him, and talking about how, uh, uh, you know, I, I need to look up the actual quote because people have said people have said it in however di different ways that they fucking want. Where it's like, oh, uh, history moves in different ways, and and uh, a decade can happen in a. There are years. There, there are decades when nothing happens. And then there are days when decades happen. And you know, it's it's just all over the place. Some people say, oh, there's weeks when decades happen. There's weeks when decades happen. There's days when decades happen. I need to, I need to look up the actual quote. Mm. Uh, there we go. Mm -mm -mm. Quote. Mm, ding, 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 ding. There are decades when nothing happened, and there are weeks where decades happen. There we go. There we go. So now that I have the actual quote, but yeah, it's true. It's so true. Like, tell me that every week of 2023 hasn't been more eventful than all of 2020. <laughs> There's just always something every week has been more eventful the 2020 felt like it went on for a, a million years right 2024 is just it's gonna go by in a flash because there's we're gonna get inundated with so much stuff and it, it, that that list the, the black book of epstein's client list is getting released this year oh so many people uh depending on when it gets released because you know you, you know they like to play their games you know, the, oh, it's Russian disinformation. Oh, don't look at that. Uh, da, 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 da. All this old shit. 
2024 is going to go by in a flash and so much is going to happen. It's literally going to be the quote. There are decades where nothing happens like say the past, the, the, the last decade, actually there, there are decades where nothing happens. And then there are weeks when decades happen. And we are watching the dis, the systematic dismantling of the American empire in real time. You have these people wanting to seize Russian reserves. That's going to kill the U.S. dollar. You have have a lot going on. But for the meantime, we're looking at the election in the United States. Because that's all anybody in America is going to be talking about for the foreseeable future. From this moment onwards, it's all about the U.S. election. Nothing else matters in America except the U.S. election. And in that U.S. election, they're trying to take Trump off the ballot. They're going to fail. They've already failed in Colorado, and they, they knew they failed, which is why they, they stayed their own decision. Like, they, they put it on pause. They didn't enact it. He's going to be on the ballot from day one. Like, on the day that they made that, that ruling, he was still going to be on the ballot because they stayed the decision. The Supreme Court's not going to... They're not going to come in and uphold that decision. They're going to say, what the hell were you doing? Well, what pot were you smoking? Maybe you need to put the marijuana down. <laughs> Coming to a decision like this, trying to take him off the ballot. And Maine, well, the Secretary of State made that decision instead of the state legislature. That's unconstitutional. If that gets challenged, it's going to get struck down too. Now, if these if these do get challenged, I imagine they're going to get challenged and then struck down right before the election. Because a lot of political games are going to be played this year. Uh, a lot of convenient timings, you know. Uh, Super Tuesdays, uh, all the all these court cases against Trump are going to open up right as the primaries are starting. I think he has like one uh, trial that's opening up in, this month right now uh, as the primaries are beginning. So, you know, all this convenient timing for all these trials and all these persecutions, it's only going to make them look worse. And then you have, what, Assange coming in. He's, uh, there's, he's I forget if it's him suing the CIA for spying. Or if it's someone else suing and using him his uh, case as a sort of example. But now the CIA is on trial. Uh, magnificent. Shoot. It's going to be an eventful year. It's going to be such an eventful year. And you know, I just, I just have this strong feeling that uh, Trump's going to win. I'm just going to say, I have a strong feeling Trump's going to win. Oh, but but he lost in 2020. Well, you know, they, they cheated in 2020. <laughs> but no, I I have never been able to shake this feeling. That every time they fight this man, they lose. Because I've, I've observed it. Every time they fight this man, they lose. They try to impeach him once, they fail. They impeach him twice, they fail. And the, the second impeachment really does throw all this whole insurrection thing, this insurrection nonsense, into the trash bin. Because what was he impeached for the second time? What was he put on trial for the second time starting an insurrection? It's January 6th, the, the worst day since 9-11. Last year. The worst day since 9-11. That's what he was impeached for the second time, and then he was acquitted. He was never convicted. He was never convicted. He was impeached but never convicted of just that, co- committing a, an insurrection against the United States. This case that they're trying to to claim that he's done, this case, this accusation that they claim 
is true has been verifiably false since day one just going off of his tweets which is why they kicked him off twitter and it took elon musk coming back reinstating him for people to see his tweet saying he was encouraging peaceful protests told people to go home and he did this in, in uh, an appropriate timeline they, they didn't want you seeing that they want you believing he was a, an insurrectionist but he was acquitted in the second impeachment and the second impeachment was him being accused of instigating an insurrection and they couldn't prove it then that this is back before we we even had access to the the thousands of hours of footage and we were only shown what the j6 committee wanted us to see only the footage of the the crowd being violent is what we were allowed to see and here we are three years later we still don't have the full footage but we have a lot more of the footage and we can see that the footage we were shown of the crowd being violent was a minority of the footage and that the majority of the footage was just peace people roaming the capitol building peacefully respecting the property it's to a surprising degree when you see how many people were in there like they did not just go in trampling everything rummaging through all the people's shit. A, a, a couple offices did get rummaged through like don't get me fucking wrong people did do that but it wasn't oh we're gonna go pick a fight with the police officers oh we're gonna where are the senators at we're gonna go bang down every door we're gonna go find the, the congressman they didn't do any of that like and i said as much back when it, it was fresh you're telling me that this mob of at least a hundred thousand people when you look at the pictures at least on they, they they had the capital under siege just by their sheer numbers like without even intentionally doing they they put the capital under siege because there were just so many of them climbing uh, like world war z climbing over the walls uh, in the balconies of the capital and you're telling me that these insurrectionists failed to find and didn't even try to find the politicians who they knew were in the building at the time that not a single politician was harmed in the making of this this insurrection these insurrectionists who forgot to bring their guns to the capital to overthrow the u.s government yeah so looking at it for what it was it wasn't an insurrection let's pretend that it was an insurrection they couldn't prove that trump instigated it in the first impeachment but here they are making these rulings and these in these and taking into court on these cases of an assumption a, an accusation a charge against him that they have yet to prove i, I say a charge they actually haven't charged him at all N not a single one of the, the 90 something plus felony cases being brought against him are charging him with insurrection and yet you have the this secretary of state in maine and the supreme court in colorado making rulings and decisions about trump's eligibility to be on the ballot based off of a crime that he hasn't even been charged with let alone been proven guilty of he's never been convicted of this crime so how are you gonna make how are you gonna make a ruling based off of a crime that he hasn't committed and hasn't been charged with and hasn't been proven guilty of they're just asking to be humiliated and they will be and they will be 2024 is going to be such an interesting year but uh, it's we we got to go through the mission we got to go through the motions right we got we got to go through it all so we can get that law you got to take the short-term l so you can get the long-term w's of being proven right 
Although I am interested to see how Trump gets around the cheating this time, you know. Very interested to see how he gets around uh, the midnight ballot dumps with half a million ballots being dumped onto an election after election day, which by itself is cheating. Counting ballots after election day is cheating. So everything that happened post uh, election day in 2020, all the votes that counted after that were illegitimate. Everything Everything that happened after election day was illegitimate. And Trump won on election night. So when we talk about cheating, we can go in depth about the midnight ballot dumps. We can go in depth about Trump ballots being thrown in the garbage. We, we, we can do all that. We can go over them pulling ballots out from under the desks, running ballots through the machines multiple times. The machines uh, fucking take flipping votes from Republicans to Democrats. We, we, we can do all that. But at the end of the day, they fucked themselves over because they counted ballots after election day. That by itself is cheating and unconstitutional. And all the rule changes that happened to enable the mail-in ballots were also unconstitutional because the state legislatures had to make those decisions. Like, everything is pointing towards them getting a really bloody nose. Because now that we're going into 2024 and they're openly meddling in the election, openly trying to keep Trump off the ballot, trying to keep RFK Jr. off the ballot too, like, uh, doing everything they can Election interference, election meddling is being proven beyond a shadow of a doubt for this election cycle, which will open up questions about the previous election cycle. If this election cycle is this corrupt, just openly, blatantly corrupt, where you're trying to take him off the ballot for a crime that he hasn't been charged with, hasn't been proven guilty of, hasn't even committed... Like, even if we give you the benefit of the doubt and say that he committed it, which you can't prove. <laughs> even if we give you the benefit of the doubt and say that he committed the crime, he hasn't been charged with this and he hasn't been convicted of this. And that's if we give you the benefit of the doubt. If we don't give you the benefit of the doubt, if we stick to the truth, he hasn't committed this crime. So what are we talking about? He's an insurrectionist. We're going to use the 14th Amendment to take him off the ballot. How? With what insurrection? It's all I I know it's it's sort of prognostication. I, I know it's sort of me just peering into the void when I say this, but I just cannot shake this feeling that all of this is going to blow up in their face. Like like their plans and their plots usually do, right? Cuz Ukraine that's going to blow up in their face in 2024. Israel-Palestine, that's going to blow up in their face in 2024. They're saber-rattling with China. If it, and they, they talk, there was that, what, that Mayahan, that, that guy, that Air Force general, talking about how he expects a war between the U.S. and China sometime in 2025 or beyond. And I'm like, if there's going to be a war between them, they're not going to wait until after your election and after you've sworn in to Congress on election, they're not going to wait until after 2024 to fight a war with you. Why would they do that? The Taiwanese elections are in 2024 and the U.S. elections are in 2024. If there's going to be a war between U.S. and China over Taiwan, it's going to happen in 2024. So that's going to blow up in our face in 2024. When NATO gets its at, when NATO is exposed for the empty husk that it is and the Russians just start running away with it in Ukraine... We can expect Kosovo, Serbia 
another place where we've been meddling, and we can expect that to blow up in our face, the China-Taiwan war might expand into us the resumption of the Korean war. That'll blow up in our face. All, and with all that, we're looking at just overseas with and with them trying to seize Russia's assets and which they frozen, you know, were almost play for play what they were doing to Japan and uh, in World War Two, using China as the proxy, what we're now doing to Russia using Ukraine as the proxy. Just, you know, just a historical comparison. So we understand the where these ideas come from and the kinds of results that they can get us. We froze Russia's assets. Now we're trying to seize them, which will completely undermine any confidence in the dollar and in dollar-denominated assets. That's going to cause a run on the, a run on the dollar. You know, we all know about what a bank run is, but a run on the currency will devalue it and remove our currency. Uh, it'll remove a lot of the artificial propping up of our currency from other people using it in trade and in business that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the United States. We're going to take a big hit. We're going to see what the real value of the dollar is, and we're not going to be very happy about that. That's going to so all this meddling, all the the, the sanctions where we're going to sanction everybody we don't like. We're going to cut you off from SWIFT. We're going to, we're going to try to put a cap on your oil. We're we're going to do all these all these goofy ass things. We're we're going to sanction people in your country. How you like that? All all this goofy shit that we've been up to is going to blow up in our face. When we seize their assets, that'll be the red line, and from which everyone else is going to be like, all right, well, we're going to get out of dollars. That's going to blow up in our face. So much shit is going to blow up in our face that I just don't see the election meddling now not blowing up in their faces too. I just don't see it. I think we are in for a very, 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 very interesting year (laughs) this year. And we're already off to a, a a promising start, right? Well, we're already off to a promising start. The Israelis crossing the threshold of genocide. Myanmar's slipping, rode the slip and slide into a civil war. And now we have a, a half a million elections this year. Uh, I, I saw this one story. I was, what was it? Jimmy Dore. I was listening to Jimmy Dore and they were going over this one story about how it, it, they were covering an article talking about how Putin wants an end of the war by March because he has elections and he doesn't want uh, to do anything crazy in the war because it might hurt his standing in those elections because he has an election to win. And I'm just like, isn't that grand, right? Because up until now, we were told that Russia's elections and their democracy was fake and that it was an authoritarian state. Putin is the authoritarian dictator. Uh, all the elections are rigged so that he always wins. But now all of a sudden, <laughs> the elections are legitimate, and he has a, a danger of losing in these elections, which is the truth. Just you know, he doesn't have to worry about that right now because his popularity is through the fucking roof. All that is projection. We're the ones with an election in twenty twenty four, and our sitting government is the one in danger of being booted out of office if anything weird goes down in Ukraine. And by weird, I mean what's about to happen in Ukraine, which is the total collapse of their ability to fight back against the Russian onslaught. While the Russians are sitting on a million men waiting for us to do something stupid so they can come in and put our ass down. NATO might do something stupid. I I can't even blame them. 
NATO might do something stupid, like trying to trying to attack a Russian border village, or, or, or trying to do trying to attack a Russian ship, or try to seize more Russian assets, or or try to put UN peacekeepers. We're gonna put peacekeepers in Western Ukraine, but we're not gonna consult the Russians about it. Oops, our peacekeepers got shot. We have to go to war with I I don't know. 2024 is going to be wild. I predict, I predict what I predict, and I'm not going to predict what I'm not going to predict because it's going to get crazy. It's going to get crazy, and it's going to get crazy very fast. We're off to a wild start already, although I am very much looking forward to the American politics side of this. This is going to be so entertaining, Uh, if for no reason other than the fact that Trump is a certified comedian. But that, my lovely listeners, is all that I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. We are in a new year, folks. A new year. 2024. Who would have thought that it would come so fast? But no matter how the world changes, we will enjoy watching those changes. We're going to have fun watching those changes together. Now, I've been your host. Hi, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to Geo to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.